0: The defendant answered the question, yes. And from the, the crowd, one stood and shouted, from his own lips we have it, guilty. He's guilty. Pastor Harold Laird, who became the founding pastor of our congregation, was being tried by his presbytery in an ecclesiastical court being brought up on charges that he had abandoned his ordination vows. And so the court found him guilty. But guilty of what? Guilty of clinging to the truth of the gospel. Guilty of defending the authority of Scripture. Guilty of proclaiming the work of missions. So this was Thursday... June 18, 1936, when he was found guilty by the Presbytery. He was suspended from his role as pastor, pastor of the prominent church, First and Central Presbyterian. The buildings still stand today on Rodney Square. He was removed, as were other men like him, because of the, the commitment he had to the gospel. He was guilty of being part of a missions-sending agency, the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, because there was this fight going on, this theological battle happening within the Presbyterian church at the time. On one side, you had those that were called the fundamentalists. They were the, the ones clinging to the fundamental truths of Scripture. I mean, it was a pejorative term initially, you fundamentalists, but one that men like Harold Laird, took as a badge of honor, because they clung to the fundamentals of the faith that, that Jesus really was the Son of God, the Bible really is God's Word, Jesus really was raised from the dead, and his death on the cross provides forgiveness to us. On the other side of this debate within Presbyterianism were the theological liberals. They would have called themselves progressives. Now, I'm not talking in political terms between conservatives and liberals. I'm talking in theological terms. The conservatives saying, this really is God's word and we will, we will cling to it. The liberals saying, well, we can talk of the, the resurrection, but just as an idea, as an inspirational motif to orient our lives. So Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead because we know such things like that don't happen. And so men like Pastor Laird said that, that if we're going to send missionaries, it matters what message they take. Because this message that Jesus died for you, Jesus has been raised from the dead—that that is the hope of the gospel. This message of liberalism—that's—it's that, not liberal Christianity. It's something altogether different. It's not Christianity at all. And so he said, if we're going to send missionaries, we need to make sure these missionaries really believe the gospel. And so the church had been supporting missionaries for years, all of whom proclaimed the gospel. And so they said, well, we're no longer going to just send money onto the denomination and let them spread it out evenly among those that, that don't believe in Jesus. We're going to interview our own missionaries. Pastor Laird was told he had to step down from his membership on the board. The church could no longer interview its own missionaries. The church could no longer send money in that way. And so Pastor Laird refused to step down, refused to abandon the gospel, refused to capitulate to liberalism. This was 80 years ago this month. And so as we walk over the next several weeks this month, we're going to look at, at the core foundational truths that our church holds, truths that we see in those founding moments, truths that should orient us today, that we worship God because he has saved us. And so worship remains a priority for us as a church. We, we cling to the truth of the Bible because it is the authoritative word of God. We hold the gospel, the message of good news, because God has rescued us. And we go on mission because God has sent us. So on Thursday, June 18, 1936, Pastor Laird was removed from his church. His relationship with the church dissolved it. In the trials that took place in other presbyteries, presbyteries actually came in and physically padlocked the buildings shut so that pastors could not preach. Now, we no longer have that problem. If our presbytery became liberal, our geographic district, if our denomination became liberal, we could stay here and keep preaching the gospel. They can't take the property with them anymore. On Thursday, he was removed from the pulpit. That next day, people gathered to plan, where will we worship? And on that Sunday, just a few days later, on Sunday, June 21st, the first worship gathering of what would become Faith Presbyterian Church gathered in the home of church members, spilling out onto the lawn. An estimated 250 people gathered in that worship service. By the following Sunday, June 28th, they had secured a building at 14th and DuPont, an empty church building which was the home for Faith Presbyterian Church. And so we moved to this location in the early 1960s. See, on that day, the pastor and the people had to take a stand for the truth of the gospel mission. That from the beginning, if we want to call ourselves a church, we have to be a church that is on mission. We have to be a missionary church. We have to be a church that is sending missionaries. We have to be a church that is supporting missionaries. We have to be a church that is willing to go with the gospel. And when we we listen to Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians, this infant church in Thessalonica, Paul says the same thing. Look Look at the pattern. It's a pattern you have now heard in our hymns. We've received the gospel, and so we go with the gospel. But look at the pattern. It's a biblical pattern that Paul sets for us here in 1 Thessalonians 1. In verse 5, Paul describes that the gospel came to the church. And in verse 8 then, the gospel message, the Lord's message, rang out from the church. You see, that's always to be the pattern. You receive the gospel in order that you can go with the gospel. You hear the gospel in order that you can speak the gospel. The gospel comes in order that the gospel will go through you. That's the message that Paul brings to the church of Thessalonica. That's The message that that Paul speaks to us today, if we want to call ourselves a church, then we have to be a missionary church. Look at the way Paul describes the the coming of the gospel to the church in Thessalonica. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Conviction. Do you hear how Paul describes the, the coming of the gospel to this church? First, look at how he describes these believers. They are brothers, loved by God, brothers and sisters in the, in the family of God, children of God, loved by God. It's a, it's a beautiful privilege to be part of God's family, to be welcomed by God, to receive the message of the gospel. The gospel comes with God's love, and it comes by God's purpose. Look at the end of verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. God chose you to be his. God set his love upon you. And and elsewhere, Paul will describe it. It it, it fills all of his letters. That before the, the beginning of the world, before creation, God chose you in Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He chose you. And that this gospel comes because you were loved by God, chosen by God, and it comes in verse 5 with the power of God. Not merely as human words, not merely as as rhetoric that, that you hear spoken, not simply with the words of a messenger, but the words come with the power of God himself. The Holy Spirit brings deep conviction so that you hear the message, you cling to it, you believe it. That's how the gospel comes to the church. You see, all of this is by God's grace. God is the actor. God is the initiator. God is the one who loved us. And so that's why even in this month, while we will give thanks to God for all that he has done in our, in our midst, for the years of faithful service, for the generations which came before us, we don't, we don't do it to exalt ourselves. We do it to give thanks to God. I mean, Look at the context of, of, of Paul's letter here. He's writing in, in verse 1, to the church, But then look at verse 2. This was a verse we haven't yet read this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. Paul says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before God our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's right to remember the the good works of the church, but, but Paul says you have to do it in the right context. It's not because the church is so great. It's because their God is so great. We thank God because of the work we have seen you do. And so in this month, as we look back, we, we think fondly of those moments of, of bold gospel proclamation in our church's past. We look back at those, those months leading up to June 1936, the start of our congregation, of men and women willing to stand firm for the gospel, inspired by, our, by hope, enduring for the sake of the gospel, but we do so giving thanks to God because all of this, All of this is by God's grace. The gospel comes to us by grace. God is the one who loved us. God is the one who has chosen us. Now, I know that that theologically, when we hear that, when we hear that God has chosen us, that it's God's purpose, that God has done all of the work, it can make us sort of think, well, maybe then I'm off the hook. I mean, if God chose everybody before the beginning of time and and God's going to finish the process, well, then... Hey, that makes it kind of easy for me. There's nothing really left for me to do. And one of the criticisms brought against this, this form of biblical teaching, where we emphasize that God is the one who chooses, one of the criticisms brought against this teaching is that, well, you, you must not be people who really care about missions. You must not be people who really care about evangelism. I mean, do you hear how the, the criticism works? If God chose everyone Way back when, at the beginning of time, and then God's going to do the work of bringing them to salvation. Well, see, there's nothing for you to do. You can sit back, put your feet up. You can be the frozen chosen who don't have to worry about doing anything. But that's never how how being chosen by God, being loved by God. That's when when Paul points out the purpose of God. He always does so in context of so now get out there and get involved in the mission. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. You, the gospel came to you, now proclaim the gospel. And you see how that actually can motivate us, the fact that we know God has chosen people? can actually motivate us because it means when we go with the gospel, we don't just go with our own words. We go with the power of God's Spirit. We don't just go hoping that maybe somebody might, might change. We go knowing that God is at work transforming people's lives. And so if, if, when you really come to understand this, this predestination this purpose of God that God chose us in Christ when you really understand it you can't be lethargic you can't be complacent you have to get involved because you are the instrument God will use to make the gospel known now to be fair sometimes I think that's a terrible plan like the God's plan to make the gospel known all around the world is to use us to use the church to make the gospel known. God, aren't there, like, don't you have messengers, like angelic messengers that you could just send out to do that? I mean, wouldn't that be an effective strategy? God, couldn't you just pipe a giant megaphone and, and you just speak it to everyone all at once? I mean, sometimes I wish that there, God had, had come up with a, with a different plan, but, but you see, God's plan has always been that the gospel would be made known through the church. Because that's actually how, how this works here. I mean, as the message rings out, it's, it's the fact that the, the believers' lives have been transformed. You become not just the the messenger, you are the the, the picture of the message. I was once a sinner, but I have been rescued. See, we are the only people for whom that is true, the church. We are the only ones in all of creation that can proclaim the, the message of salvation as those who have received it and experienced it. And so God's plan is to use us as a church. So when we hear this message that God has chosen us, It should motivate us. It should move us to go out. And this was meant to be an encouragement to the Thessalonian church because they're a church in the midst of suffering. Look with me at verse 6. Paul describes that that the message came to them in power, and he says in verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. See, in the midst of suffering the mission motivates us. In the midst of suffering, when we see what God has done, we can can experience the joy that the Holy Spirit gives us. Now, I know this isn't a full answer to the pain and the suffering you feel in life. But what it does do is help us see that that suffering is not meaningless. And if you want to think more about this, go back and listen to to last Sunday's sermon as Jim walked us through those those glorious truths of, of Romans 8 that our suffering is not meaningless. And here Paul is saying that when you, when you suffer with joy, when you can have the joy of God's Spirit even in the midst of suffering, then your suffering has a purpose. I mean, what is the purpose here? Look at verse 7. The church becomes a model to all the believers. When you suffer with joy, when you continue to trust in God in the midst of suffering, then you can encourage those around you those who sit next to you in the, in the pews, those who pray with you in community group, those who serve alongside you in ministry, when, when they see your joy in Christ, even in the midst of pain and sorrow and sadness, when they see your joy, then they're strengthened and encouraged. But not only that, not only are you an encouragement to believers, verse 8, the, the message then rings out from you. You become a, a messenger who proclaims, look at what God has done, look at how good God is. Look at how great and glorious God is. So yes, this doesn't answer all the questions we have about pain and sorrow and suffering, but it helps us see that our suffering has meaning, has purpose, has significance. So the pattern is that the gospel came to the church and then the gospel rings out from the church. Look again at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. That word there that's used to, that's translated as rang out, is a a word that that would be used to describe thunder, that kind of thunder that wakes you up in the middle of the night, that shakes the whole house. It's a word that could be used to describe the the shouting of a a mob, either in anger or in victory. It's, It's a word that could be used to describe the way a rumor spreads everywhere. It can't be contained. It can't be stopped. That's how the gospel message is meant to reverberate through the halls of the church, through the lives of Christians. When you receive the gospel, you are meant to proclaim the gospel. When you are given the gospel, you're meant to to turn and give it away, proclaim it, announce it, share it. And do you see what Paul is saying? If you want to be a church, you must be a missionary church. If you want to be a church, you must proclaim and go in mission. You must proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news, and go in mission. And it's helpful for us to remember. Now, I know we just jumped in this morning to this passage, so I haven't given you much context for 1 Thessalonians. But while 1 Thessalonians is not the first letter of Paul in the order of your Bible, it is likely the first letter Paul wrote. He had just planted the church in Thessalonica, maybe a year or two before. This is a brand new church plant, a brand new church. And, and he was up in Thessalonica, which is, which is in that region of Macedonia, northern Greece. He's now down in Achaia, that Roman province of southern Greece. He's in Corinth. And he's writing back to this brand new church, reminding them what does it mean to be a church. It means you receive the gospel and you go with the gospel. You hear the gospel and you speak the gospel. If you want to call yourself a church, then you must be a missionary church. And there are words of encouragement for us. Because faith church exists because of missions. Now, in one sense, that's true of every church. Because every church started at some point because somebody came and told them about Jesus and then started a church. But but specifically, in June 1936, it was on this issue of missions that our leaders took a stand, that our founding pastor was removed from the, 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 the denomination which was creeping and has now fallen into liberalism, removed from that denomination to start this new church. And so it was true in 1936, but we have to ask ourselves, is it true for us today? Is faith a missionary church? Now we might See, we might be tempted to sort of lift up faith church as this grand and glorious example. I mean, look at us. We are the church that started because of missions. I mean, look at our church budget. We give a higher percentage to missions than than most churches I know. Look at the the back of our bulletin where we list the missionaries we support. See, the danger is that, that we would in our pride, exalt the church. But remember what Paul is doing here. He's not exalting... Yes, he is encouraging the church in Thessalonica because of their example in making the gospel known. But he's, all, he's doing it in this context of giving thanks to God. And so it's, it's right for us to take this home, this list of missionaries, take this home and pray for these missionaries. The reason this is included is not to exalt ourselves, but to, to exalt the mission that we've been given to glorify God, to pray and support the missionaries that that we serve. So in one sense, there is this this danger. Because think of this danger of us us exalting in just the the story of Faith Church. I mean, think of what the the church walked away from, just just in terms of property and, and dollars. When they walked away from that property of First and Central, across the street from the Hotel DuPont... They walked away from a significant amount of money, from a significant set of resources. But they walked away because of the, the power of the gospel, because of the hope of the gospel. And so we give thanks to God for what has been done. We, we can't exalt ourselves. But I, but I know that, that that potentially isn't the biggest danger for us when you hear a sermon on missions. Yes, I mean, we can... Thank God for what's happened. But the the bigger danger is actually the opposite, the sort of despair and embarrassment. Yes, Faith Church has a history of missions, but what about me? Faith Church has sent people to go, but what about me? I mean, I I remember even as a kid that grew up in a church that, that emphasized missions, I remember hearing the missionaries come through and actually being worried. What if God asked me to go? What if I had to go to one of those places? I mean, for me as a kid, it was the, the place I feared the most was Bangladesh. I mean, I was afraid, what if God called me to go there? Now, maybe it's a different place for you. But I also know that in my own life, it's, it's not just the, the fear of going somewhere far away and failing in that sense. It's the, the fear of talking to a neighbor across a fence. It's the fear of getting to, to know a classmate or coworker for some of you. It's the fear of embarrassment. And so actually when we hear, when we hear a stirring message about missions and we hear this, this truth, we see the biblical truth that to be a church is to be a missionary church. To be a Christian is to be a missionary. We think, well, then I failed. Because I'm not bold enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, a, I'm afraid of what it might cost me. And so Paul, in pointing out the, the, the pattern of the gospel, that the gospel comes so that the gospel can go, he, he's reminding them of the gospel. I mean, even just to use that word, it's a word now, gospel, that we really only ever use in church. But in the ancient Roman world, it's a word that you would have used to announce any kind of good news. If the, if the king's herald had showed up to say that the emperor's son has been born, hear the good news, hear the gospel that I proclaim to you. I mean, it was a word that was understood in the ancient world as an announcement of good news. And what Paul is saying is, is I have better news than that. The best news you have ever heard, I have more glorious news. You as sinners, as people broken, as people ashamed, you have been rescued because God's own Son has come to rescue you. Look at the the description that the Apostle Paul gives in verse 10. That The the believers, they wait for the Son from heaven, Jesus... Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That is good news for the church. That is good news for us. That God is the one who chooses, and God is the one who rescues. That's the good news that we need to hear, that frees us from sin. And so Paul, remembering the the story of the Thessalonians, look at at verse 9. Describes the change, the transformation that took place in their own lives. He says that when people speak of this church, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, that's a picture of true repentance. They turned from the, the idols they had chased after, and they, they lived in a culture where, where it would have been common to go into a temple, bow down and bring offerings to a, to a statue of wood or gold or precious stone. And so we might think that, well, idolatry isn't a problem for us. Well, in many parts of our culture, it still is physical bowing down to, to, a, sculpt, to a sculpture, an idol. But for all of us, it's that attitude of the heart. And Paul presses this in other places. That It's the attitude of, of choosing our own path, choosing, choosing even good things of the world and, and making them the most precious, most, most important, ultimate things. But Paul describes the, the work of God in the life of the Thessalonians. They turned from their idols and they turned to God. You see, that's the same pattern that, that is given to us. What does it mean to become a follower of Jesus? It means to turn from your sin, turn from your idols, and turn to God. What's it mean to, to live a life of Christian obedience? It means to turn from sin and to turn and serve the living and true God. That's the pattern that is offered to us. That's the reminder we need. And do you see how this pattern actually then then lifts us up out of our despair? that we've been empowered by God's Spirit, we've been rescued by Jesus. But it also also humbles us. Because there's nowhere in this story we can take credit for sort of climbing our way up to heaven. We we can't take credit for the good things that we have done. All that that our, our service becomes is service to the living God, the one who rescued us. He's the one who gets all the credit. He's the one who loved us. He's the one who chose us. He's the one whose power changed us. And so the message of the gospel, the very message we proclaim, keeps us from both pride and despair. Now we've heard multiple times in this passage these references to the Roman provinces. Macedonia, Achaia. Macedonia, northern Greece, Achaia, southern Greece. Roman provinces. and, And Thessalonica was in Macedonia. Just miles from the birthplace of a great king. The Macedonian king. A king whose name you even know today, Alexander the Great. A king whose empire stretched across the known world, bigger than any empire that had gone before him. See, Macedonians continued to take pride. Even as citizens of Rome, the Roman Empire, they took pride in being Macedonians. They took pride in their own culture, and so Paul is is pointing them. He's acknowledging that truth that the gospel message is now spread through, through Macedonia, but also through Rakeia, and really everywhere in the world. And Chrysostom, a great preacher of the, the early church, he picks up on this theme. He says Paul is reminding the, the, the church in Macedonia that they have a greater king. They think of Alexander as the great king, but they now serve an even greater king whose kingdom stretched well beyond the boundaries of of Alexander's, whose kingdom stretches from shore to shore, from pole to pole, all over the world, throughout the universe. That's where this king, Jesus' kingdom, stretches. Jesus, the one who spoke the heavens into existence, then became a child. Jesus, the great king, humbled himself and died in the place of sinners. That's what Paul says. Jesus is the one who rescued us from sin. Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead. And Jesus is the one, look at verse 10, who will rescue us from the coming wrath. Church, you serve a great and glorious king. You've been given the beauty of the gospel. And so if we want to be a church, then we must go with that gospel. We must go as individuals. We must go in our ministries. We must go in the support of, and prayer, and sacrifice for our missionaries. We must ask the question, God, where would you send me with this gospel message? When Pastor Laird had to explain his decision to the church, he wrote them a letter describing his reason for for staying true to the the pattern of, of biblical Christianity, that to be a church is to be a missionary church. And And this is what he said. He wanted wanted the church to be able to give their missionary contributions in knowledge that those funds would be used to preach. To preach the pure gospel. Particularly in the the pioneer fields at the ends of the world, he said. This is what he said. I believe it to be the primary duty of, of the church to teach and preach the gospel. We have the great ministry of getting the pure gospel to the ends of the earth. That is why Faith Presbyterian Church exists, to make the gospel message known to the ends of the earth. You have been given the gospel. Let the gospel ring out from our midst. Go with the gospel to make known the great and glorious good news of our King who rescues us from sin. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in the hope of Jesus. Lord, we give you thanks for the the men and women, the families that stood firm in their biblical gospel convictions, those that started this church generations ago. Lord, we thank you for their example, for their, their faithfulness, their endurance. We rejoice in your power that was on display in them. We rejoice in your love that flowed through them. And so, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us to continue that legacy, that legacy which stretches back to the the founding of the church in Scripture, that to be the church is to be the church on mission. Lord, work in us. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Lord, for those who hear this message and yet wonder if, if it could be true, give them now faith to believe. Draw them out of sin. Help them to turn from idols and turn to you by faith. Where we rejoice in the power and the hope of the gospel. So we come praying in the name of Jesus. Jesus, the one who rescues us. Amen.